Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont. If you're in our area, we wanted to let you know that we have community groups starting back again in September. So check out that and other ministries we have going on here at newkingchurch.com. Uh, all right, so we're going to be in Matthew 2, so go ahead and flip your Bibles open to Matthew 2. And um, man, great to be here with everybody. So, um, so we're in a series, actually a series of series called Kingdom Come, if you're just joining us, and that's going through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, right now, we're in the first installment of this series called The King's Arrival looking at the beginning of Jesus' coming to earth. So last week, if you weren't with us, we learned about the Magi who visited the newly born Messiah, King Jesus. They asked King Herod, where is he who is to be born King of the Jews? Right? And King Herod, he thought he was the King of the Jews, right? He was the King of Judea. And so his rule was threatened by a newborn. And so begins a conflict between the heavenly King Jesus and a king of the earth, Herod. So this week we're going to see this truth that God planned to, and he intervened to preserve his anointed king, his chosen king, even in his infancy. So two things that we really see in this passage, God's predetermined plan and God's direct intervention. So Lord willing, you'll see that it is true what God spoke through King David in Psalm 2, verse 6, the psalm that Lucius quoted earlier, I have, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. So just to give you an idea of what we're going to be going through, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the story of Bethlehem and God's unfolding plan to establish his chosen king from Bethlehem. And then we'll look at this passage to see how God directly intervenes to preserve his chosen king from this threat, this king of the earth, King Herod. And finally, we'll look at other, two other prophecies in this passage to see God's predetermined plan to preserve his king. So let's ask the Spirit to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you so much for your church, this body that can be here assembling to look at your precious word and see the truths that are here for us. And so, Father, I just ask that you would teach us according to your word, that you would teach us by your spirit. Your spirit would be here teaching us, that you would shepherd your church into the knowledge of Christ and into your great work, your great plan to establish and to preserve your Messiah King, Jesus so put praise into our hearts. Let us worship you for your power, for your glory, and for that all that you are. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. Amen. So I want to start halfway through this passage, actually, to focus, to start with this atrocity that occurs. So look at verse 16. Verse 16, Matthew 2. Then Herod when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Bethlehem, this is the place of the Messiah's birth, 
and it becomes the setting for a conflict, the battleground where a king of the earth tries to destroy the true king of God's people in a desperate attempt to secure his rule. Fearing this competitor, this supposed king of the Jews, King Herod does something drastic and terrible, genocide, infanticide. So look at verse 17, though. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's just a sad verse there. But, so first of all, Ramah, that means height or hill. And it's possible that this particular Ramah is very near to Bethlehem and is the actual gravesite of Rachel, one of Israel's wives. And it would have likely been a high place nearby looking over Jerusalem and Bethlehem, Jerusalem being directly next to Bethlehem and north of it. So now to understand the biblical significance of this prophecy as it relates to Bethlehem and Rachel, I want to tell you the story of Bethlehem, okay? I want to tell you this is a 2,000-year-long story of God's unfolding plan to establish His chosen king from there, from Bethlehem. So Bethlehem's story, it begins in Genesis 35, and you may want to flip there to Genesis 35. Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament. We're just reading out the first book in the New Testament. Now we're going to the first book in the Old Testament, chapter 35. So uh, this is almost 2,000 years before Christ. And here we are 2,000 years after Christ, right? That's crazy. And uh, now Bethlehem's story in Genesis 35, it starts with labor pains, and it starts with a birth, and it ends with mourning and with a death. In Genesis 35, Rachel dies, giving birth to her son, Benjamin. Verse 16, look at verse 16 of chapter 35. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. So take note of that place, Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand. Verse 19, so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Right? Did you see that coming? <laughs> Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So first of all, the writer calls Ephrath Bethlehem. So people who were from Bethlehem were often called Ephrathites. So you see the two terms are closely related, perhaps because that Ephrath is the broader area or region, perhaps. Uh, that's why Bethlehem is often referred to as Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Maybe you've heard that before. And in Rachel's time, Bethlehem Ephrathah was a place of death and mourning, a place of hard labor pains, but also a place of life and birth. And then verse 20, though, it doesn't stop there. In verse 20, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb 
It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day, which was Moses' day. He wrote Genesis. Now, here's this imagery of a pillar over Rachel's tomb. It endured through the time of Moses and presumably long after, possibly even up until Jesus' time. It is significant to the people of Israel. It's a visual that one of the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel is still watching over them, over her children, over her offspring, this silent pillar watching over her descendants as they live and suffer and die, right? So throughout the history of Israel, people are seeing Rachel still looking over them, over Bethlehem, over Jerusalem, looking over her children, and God begins the story of Bethlehem there already a significant place to the people of Israel. So Bethlehem Ephrathah, it shows up in the Old Testament again, and God begins to reveal His good intentions for Bethlehem Ephrathah. You've heard of the book of Ruth, right? Well, Ruth's in-laws were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. And you've heard of the book of, well, yeah, I understood that. Ruth 1, 2, that's where it says that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. If you know anything about the book of Ruth, it's the story of how she met and married a man named Boaz, who was from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And the people of Bethlehem gave Boaz and her a blessing that would follow them and their offspring all the way to the birth of their descendant, who was King Jesus the Christ. The people of Bethlehem, they gave this blessing, and you can find it in Ruth 4, 11 through 12, and I'll read it for you so you can hear May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, that is Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." So you see, though Herod had intended this land to be the grave of God's chosen king, even as far back as Ruth's time, God had intended it to be a place of blessing for their offspring. Then in Ruth 4, 18 through 22, at the very end of Ruth, you see the genealogy of Boaz and Ruth's descendants, and their grandson was Jesse, who fathered David, who later became king of Israel about a thousand years before Jesus. And you can see in 1 Samuel 17, 12, it says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. You see how this is playing out into the story of God's anointed king? So in this part of Bethlehem's story, we see that God has chosen Bethlehem Ephrathah as the hometown of kings. David was the first good king. There was Saul, but he was dethroned quickly because of his sin, and King David was the first of a lineage of kings from which Jesus would arise. It is the birthplace of the rulers of his chosen people. It becomes apparent from the story of Bethlehem that God had predetermined that Bethlehem Ephrathah would be the place from which his chosen king would arise. And prophet Micah confirms this. He says in Micah 5.2, but you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient days. You see this predetermined plan that God had laid out. Though King Herod thought he could kill God's chosen king in one wicked plot, God had declared long ago that his ruler would come from Bethlehem. So the story of Bethlehem, it continues hundreds of years after, after David. 400 years later, actually. The descendants of David, the kings of Judah and of Israel, they sin against the Lord generation after generation. Sin, repent, sin again, and then they don't really repent. Uh, and so the people of Israel are destroyed and taken into captivity by foreign nations and by foreign kings. At one time, about 600 years before Christ, the Israelites are defeated by the Babylonians. Their people were being slaughtered. Grave atrocities committed against them by the Babylonians. And during that time, there is a point where the people of Jerusalem are being gathered together, being prepared for enslavement by the Babylonians all in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And Jeremiah the prophet, he witnesses this tragedy. And though he prophesies of better times to come, he mourns this tragedy. And he gives this word in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Did, did you catch that that was the, the prophecy quoted in Matthew 2? So it's as if Jeremiah was weeping for his people, seeing them gathered for enslavement right here in Bethlehem in Jerusalem. And then he sees it. He sees this hill in the distance. He sees where Rachel was buried. Maybe he saw the hill looking over the tragedy unfolding in Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Maybe he saw the pillar standing over the grave, Rachel weeping for her children as they are being abused and they're being taken into captivity, as they're being slaughtered by the kings of the earth. So it's actually possible that Jeremiah is mourning right beside Rachel's tomb and pillar, actually, because according to Jeremiah 40, verse 1, the prophet is actually let go by the Babylonians at Ramah. You can see that later, that they let him go at Ramah as the people were being led away in chains. But the point is that Jeremiah is witnessing the destruction of God's people by the kings of the earth, and the Spirit of the Lord fills him to say these words because you see, the, the Lord knew the deep suffering that was there in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem in Jeremiah's day. He saw it. And he knew even then what suffering would be caused by King Herod 600 years later. And God knew that Bethlehem was a place of suffering in Jeremiah's time. And he knew that it would be a place of suffering in the infancy of his chosen king. It is a place of deep labor pains, hard labors to bring forth into the world the prince of peace. Do you see this narrative? Do you see this narrative unfolding? I mean, I can't tell with your mask on, so it's hard to tell if you, if you guys are getting this, this narrative that God's unfolding, this plan. So yeah, you get it, right? Okay, go ahead and give me some nods or some thumbs up, uh, or take your mask off and smile for a moment, you know? Um, Honestly, that'd probably distract me. But 
Anyways, the, the, the prophet Jeremiah uh, writes this verse mourning for Bethlehem and Jerusalem in his day, yet the apostle Matthew reads this as a prophecy of what happened in Christ's infancy. Rachel witnessing yet again the destruction of her children, the infants of Bethlehem Ephrathah destroyed by the kings of the earth. And so the story of Bethlehem arrives upon Jesus' day. And though Bethlehem must yet again be a place of suffering and mourning and hard labor pains, yet there is a victory, there is a hope, there is a child who escapes, the true king in Israel. God knew what King Herod had plotted long ago. He knew his plots, but his plots were in vain. Bethlehem became, in Jesus' day, the place where God thwarted the plots of the kings against his anointed one. Psalm 2 speaks of the vanity of the plotting of the kings of the earth against God's chosen king. In Psalm 2, verse 2, you can read it. It says this, The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Anointed one, that's literally Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules... Uh-oh. But the one who rules in heaven, look at the response of God. It says, but the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain." You can't outplan God. You can't beat God. You can't stop His will. He's unstoppable. Even when the enemies of God seem victorious, even when they oppress God's people, even when they put a heavy burden on His people, even then God's will shall be established. The prophet Isaiah, he wrote this in 11, chapter 11 of Isaiah, 24 through 27. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely, As I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. And verse 26, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? No one can turn back the hand of God when he is set to do and accomplish his will. So you know the deep labor pains of Rachel and of Bethlehem to bring forth the Messiah. They remind me of, a, of the deep labor pains of the woman in John's revelation. I think this is a common theme throughout the scripture that we're uncovering. It reminds me of this woman in John's revelation in chapter 12. There, John, he sees a woman crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And a great dragon who represents Satan, he stands before the woman, waiting for her to give birth so that he might devour the child. But then it says in Revelation 12, 5, 
she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Opposite, uh, uh, I've skipped ahead, but, this is still Revelation 12, 5, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So you see, there must be hard labor pains to bring forth God's chosen king. There must be demonic opposition and threats of death, but God still preserves His anointed one. But Bethlehem Ephrathah is the place of Messiah's birth, is the place where a king of the earth plotted to destroy God's chosen king. It is the place where Rachel weeps for suffering, the place where God thwarted the plans of men, the place God establishes His will, His purpose, and where He establishes His ruler, the Messiah Jesus. And that is the story of Bethlehem. Makes you think a little differently about those songs we sing about Bethlehem at Christmas time, right? So that's the story of Bethlehem that God's telling. God had planned from way back to establish and to preserve his anointed king against the plottings of the kings of the earth. And so he did. Though Rachel must weep, yet one would be preserved who would dismantle the rule of the earthly authorities. So now that we've looked at the story of Bethlehem, let's look at how God delivered his chosen king. How did he deliver him from this demonic threat? Let's start with verse 13, at the beginning of our passage. Matthew 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So you see how God directly intervened to establish his plan, to make his plan work. In verse 13, God warns Joseph in a dream, God directly intervenes to bring him to Egypt. And this wasn't the only time that the Lord directly intervened with Joseph through a dream. I don't know if you've noticed this, but before this, he had already appeared to Joseph when Joseph was considering divorcing his somehow pregnant fiance Mary. In, in chapter 1, verse 20, he appears to him in a dream. And then two more times in today's passage, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream in verses 19 through 22. I'll read it right now. Catch the times where God intervenes. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Four times that the Lord directed Joseph, four times in a dream that Joseph obeyed. He got up and obeyed the Lord and was an integral part of fulfilling the Lord's plan to establish his Messiah. So each time the Lord intervened to direct Joseph's steps according to his will, according to the will he had already predestined for the Messiah. So, 
how did, just to answer our question bluntly, how did God preserve His anointed as He had planned so long ago? He directly intervened to preserve and establish His King. He did it by using dreams and by using the obedience of Joseph. And He guides them to Egypt and then later to Nazareth. So speaking of Egypt and Nazareth, that's a part that we haven't talked about in this passage yet. We spent a lot of time talking about Bethlehem, but you also see how God had planned for Egypt and Nazareth to, be play, to play a part, each of them their own part, in preserving His anointed king from the opposition of the enemy. There are two prophecies in our passage that relate to these places, so we're going to look at those. The first is in verse 15, as they leave from as they leave for Egypt. So Matthew writes this, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. By the way, notice this common theme. We, have, we see it three times in this passage, but it's all throughout Matthew where it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by a prophet or this prophet or the prophets, okay? Matthew's trying to establish that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, so this prophecy comes from Hosea 11, verse 1, uh, and there it says this, 11, verse 1 of Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So in the context, you know, it doesn't really sound like a prophetic pronouncement, kind of, in the context, right? Because in the context, the prophet Hosea is clearly referring to literal Israel, when it literally was delivered from slavery to Egypt through Moses and was then brought to the promised land, if you know the story of Israel. So you see, to explain that, Israel, had, Israel and his sons, they had left the promised land for Egypt to seek refuge from a devastating famine that would have wiped them out. And God had prepared a way in Egypt for them through Joseph to have refuge there. In Egypt, Israel was preserved, Right? And the plan of God, Egypt, was the place where He would preserve His chosen people, where He would preserve the seed from which the Savior would come. So, Matthew, he understands that when Hosea says these words, although he's directly talking about Israel, he is speaking as a prophet. And so, Matthew, he catches the double meaning. There's a double meaning here. There's the historical reality referred to of Israel, but then also there is the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And you see this throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. There is a historical reality referred to, and there is the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. You see it everywhere. So just as Israel was preserved in Egypt, so was the Messiah King. And just as Israel was brought up from Egypt, so was the infant king, Jesus. But there's still one more prophecy we haven't covered, and that's in verse 23. So look at verse 23. Right after the Lord directed them to Nazareth, it says this, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this one is a bit tricky. It took me a while to meditate on this one and think through this. Uh, but I think it's important that you try to understand this, so, so you really try to lean into this. You see, if you look in the Old Testament, you actually won't find a specific prophecy that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. 
right? So how do you explain this? Uh, we, we begin to see an answer for this in this text. So Matthew, notice that Matthew, he says something a little different than the other times, right? The other times he talks about a fulfillment of prophecy. He says it, will, it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, right? Then the other time he says what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. But this time he says by the prophets, plural, not speaking of a specific prophet. Now, Jerome, a famous Bible scholar from the early church, he gives a good explanation. He said this, if this could have been found in the Scriptures, Matthew never would have said because it has been spoken by the prophets, but he would rather have spoken more plainly because it has been spoken by a prophet or by the prophet. As it is now in speaking of prophets in general, Matthew has shown that he has not taken the specific words, but rather the sense from the Scriptures. Not the specific words, but the sense from the Scriptures. Thanks, Jerome. Well, so what in, in what sense do we see that the Scriptures testify that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene? Well, there are at least two possible senses that Jerome points out, and I think they're both true to an extent. So, one possible sense is the sound of the word Nazarene. So, which by, by sound association in the Hebrew, it could be related to a different word, the word for Nazarite. You've heard of the Nazarite vow that they would take in the Old Testament. It was someone who consecrated themselves or was made holy for a task. So, I think this is possible, and I like this idea because it draws a parallel with Samson, who was a Nazarite uh, from birth, and you see this in Judges three, uh, 13, 5 where an angel appears to a barren woman and gives, him instruction, gives her instructions about Samson. It says this, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Sounds like familiar words, right? No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Do you see the parallel there? Now, that's possible, that sense. But the other more certain sense uh, that most people agree on is the meaning of the word Nazarene, uh, which is actually the same Hebrew word, root word for branch, branch, okay? The, word, the Hebrew word is nedzer. Don't correct me on my pronunciation. That's, that's my pronunciation on it. But the prophet Isaiah used this word in reference to the Messiah, the Messiah such as in Isaiah 11.1. 1. He says this in Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot will blossom from the root of Jesse. You remember Jesse we mentioned, the Bethlehemite, the Ephrathite? A shoe will blossom from the root of Jesse, a branch, a nedzer, from his root. So Jerome thinks Matthew would have read this as a Nazarene from his root, right? The same root word. You can see the Hebrew. So the point is this, though. I know that's a lot of Hebrew, a lot of, whoa, a little ethereal, a little abstract, but the point is this. God rescues his chosen king from the plotting King Herod. God gives him refuge in Egypt, and he calls him back from there. And then God brings him to dwell safely in Nazareth, where he would be called a Nazarene, known as a man holy to God's purpose, the messianic branch from the root of Jesse. So God not only preserved his chosen king from an enemy, but he also established him in his messianic purpose. So to sum up everything, here we are at the conclusion. To sum up everything, try as King Herod might, he could not destroy 
one infant. Herod plotted in vain. The Lord scoffed at him and brought his plans to ruin. And the Lord formed his own plans, his will that had been established from the foundations of the earth to see his son rule. God used the plans of his enemy to further and to cause his own plans to unfold. The enemy played right into his plans. He used Herod to fulfill his own will. So truly, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. God does what he purposes. He brings it to pass. So maybe you're sitting here and you're not sure what to do with this message, right? Because the truth is that this story isn't really about you. Whoa, a sermon that's not about me? I can't take it. No, make it about me. <laughs> where's my application? Where's, where's the me thing, right? The scriptures really aren't about you in general, right? Uh, but we, you know, we take it and we see how we need to live out things, right? But it's, about, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about King Jesus and the providence of God to protect him and to establish his reign. It was the Lord that... So if the Lord might be calling you to do something with this message, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. This is a call to action. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your spirit, that you are here guiding us and teaching us, Lord, through this passage, through the victory of your son, Jesus, this infant who the world could not destroy. I pray that you would let this seed of your word go deep into our hearts, let it bring forth fruit in our lives, and I pray that you would give us understanding and teaching for what we did not understand. Give us understanding and preserve us from how the world would choke this word with its concerns. And through this word, prepare us for persecution, for tribulation, so that we may endure in faith, believing you that you will establish your will to the glory of King Jesus. And in his name we pray all this. Amen.